0: One of the questions that everyone wonders is, what happens when you die? In today's study from 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is going to answer that question in a most encouraging fashion. Specifically, Paul is going to tell his readers about the hope, salvation, and reunions that are right around the corner. If the Apostle Paul were to conduct a funeral service, what would he say? What would Paul emphasize? We don't have a biblical record of Paul presiding over a funeral service, but there are hints in his epistles, in his writings, of what he might tell us and how he might encourage our hearts. In his letters, he talks about mortality. He doesn't hide it. There are faith systems, sometimes they even have a cross up top, that hide mortality, Paul didn't, is at the forefront of so many of his letters. But here's the thing, even as he addressed mortality, even as he talked about life and death, what's interesting is that on virtually every occasion that he does so, he does so very optimistically. Very optimistically. That's not the norm for us. We think about death, we think about mortality, we go to past graveyards, and our first impulse is one that is dark and somber and sad, and that's understandable for all the obvious reasons. But at the same time, that's not what you see when Paul talks about these things. It's not sadness and lament and endless sorrow that he describes. He is ongoingly, consistently optimistic. Now, why? Well, part of the reason he was optimistic is because God had blessed him with an opportunity to see a few things that you and I have not yet been able to see. An example, an example, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about himself as one that God had given this great vision to, a vision of what comes next, a vision of what Shakespeare called that undiscovered country. Paul discovered it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He saw things, he heard things, and when he came back to report on it, he just says it's inexpressible. It's not even lawful for him to write it down because in all honesty, there weren't words in any tongue by which he could effectively do it. So he doesn't even try except for one word. When Paul got this vision of heaven and he came back, there was one word that he utilized to describe what he saw and what some of our loved ones are seeing right now. Paradise. 2 Corinthians 12:14. he talks about himself as one who was caught up into Paradise where I heard inexpressible words that's not lawful for a man to utter. Paul saw what you and I longed to see. Paul's eyes surveyed this heavenly estate and undoubtedly laid eyes upon the king who dwells there. And because of that, because of what he saw, he comes back and reports to us and he says, you know what, that's way better. You know what, that's the ideal ideal. And we weren't made for this, we were made for there. And let me tell you, if it were up to me, I'd want to go there right now. What does he say? He says this later on. He says, for me, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. So there was value in his ministry, undoubtedly. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell because I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul loved his ministry and loved the people he was ministering to. And yet, if it was up to him. He says, you know what? I'm torn because I've seen what awaits. And I know who awaits. And it's far better. You and I have challenges believing that sort of thing at times. I mean, we trust it with eyes of faith. But then we drive past the cemetery or we lose a loved one. And that which we intellectually, theologically give our assent to and nod our heads to becomes real in a way that challenges us. With that said, when Paul saw and heard and knew of people who were being challenged in matters of faith in Thessalonica and Galatia and Corinth and anywhere he went, he regularly consistently described the eternal future of the believer as one so positive that we should be encouraged about the prospect of going there. If Paul was to conduct a funeral service for a fellow believer, it would not be filled with sorrow and despair and lament. There would be tears, but it would not be filled with sorrow, lament, and despair. Rather, it would be filled with hope and expectation. And that's what he is going to share with the people in Thessalonica, and that's what God is sharing with us this morning. All right, if you would, let's just return to verse 13. This is not a lengthy text, but we'll take it roughly one verse at a time and work through the balance. Verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. He's writing to Christian brothers. He does not want them to be ignorant. I do not want you to be ignorant or unknowing concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you were to sorrow as those who have no hope. All right, before we go any further, let's remember the context. Who are the Thessalonians? What do we remember about the Thessalonians? Well, we remember a couple things. Number one, of all the letters Paul wrote, and he wrote a lot of letters, this is the first, at least chronologically, we believe this to be the first one that he wrote, somewhere between 50 and 52 AD. Now, the church in Thessalonica was actually a little bit healthier than some of the other churches Paul dealt with. But he was worried about them because they were young and they were new in the faith. And so he sent Timothy to go to Thessalonica and see what's going on and encourage them and then to report back. Well, when Timothy came back, he told Paul something that he rarely got a chance to tell Paul. He says, you know, Paul, things are actually going really pretty good. The seeds of faith and love are being cultivated. Now, that's not the report he got from every church. There was other letters he wrote that he calls hard letters, you know, strong letters, letters that were difficult. But in this letter, he says, Thessalonians, this is wonderful. Timothy visited with you. God bless that young man. He visited with you, and then he came back to me, and he said that things are going well. Be encouraged in the faith and keep up the good fight, keep up the good work that you're doing there. So he encourages them, and he himself is encouraged that God is at work in their midst. And yet, and yet there's things that they don't understand. There's things that they haven't figured out yet, and that's understandable because they were new and they were young. This is not a church. You know, ours has we got 125 years of history here. They didn't have that. And so they were ignorant of some things, some precepts and doctrines and the like. And among other things, I'm sure there was a lot they were ignorant about, but one of them, one of them in verse 13, it says they were ignorant about the fate of Christian believers who had died in the gap between two things, and the gap between when Jesus ascended into heaven and when he's coming back. Okay? Everyone understood and believed that he would return, but the problem in Thessalonica is that many folks there understood that Jesus would come back imminently, and their grave concern was that what happens to the individuals who die before he gets here? That's the point of ignorance they had principally. One group worried that those who had died prior to Christ's return would miss out on the promises, the promises that He had made them. Imagine if you had a loved one in that time frame. Christ has gone up to heaven, but He hasn't come back, and your expectation is He'll come back at any moment, and you have a loved one, and your loved one's health is flagging, and your loved one's health is failing, and then they die in your arms. Imagine your consternation if your assumption was that in order for this person, your loved one, to have any future... They had to still be alive when Jesus came back. Imagine your consternation when they passed right in front of you. As their health was failing, you would probably be thinking a couple things. Number one, hold on just a little longer. Or number two, Jesus come faster. Now, there was a second group of folks in Thessalonica that had a different misunderstanding. I mean, these are good people. they just, it was confusion. And a second group of people had come to the conclusion that, well, maybe, maybe Jesus has already returned. Maybe he's already come back. In fact, there was rumors about that. If you read the letter of Second Thessalonians, Paul writes to them to talk about that issue. Some people thought he would already returned, and of course, Paul says, no, 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 no. Paul says, when he returns, there was not going to be any doubt. You're not going to be sitting there wondering, I, I wonder if Jesus has come back. It's not going to be like that. The trump shall sound, the dead shall rise, you'll know it. You'll know it. He says that in 2 Thessalonians and he also says that in today's text. Whatever the case is, they were ignorant about all of this. They didn't understand and you can't blame them because, again, this is a newer church and these were, broadly speaking, younger believers. But because they didn't understand, because they were ignorant, they were tempted to grieve. And not just to grieve, grieve, but to sorrow as those who have no hope of any reunion with their loved one, of any fate for the loved one, and possibly of any eternal future for themselves. Now, let me stop here for a moment. In today's text, Paul will use the euphemism asleep. Why do you think he does that? Why doesn't he just say died? Well, asleep has an implication that you will wake up. Asleep has an implication of a transient state, right? Last night you all were asleep, and now you're not. Right? That's one of the reasons he uses the euphemism. The word cemetery The Greek word cemetery actually means sleeping chamber, sleeping chamber. So this concept of sleep, that's one of the things that he wants to encourage them in. But secondary, let me add this point before we go on. For those who were anxious about sleep, death, mortality, any of that, in particular for those who were grieving that someone that they loved dearly, a spouse, a child, a parent, had passed. Let me establish this right now so it doesn't get lost as we go through this text. If you're grieving because someone you love is lost... If you're grieving because you miss someone that is dear to you and has been dear to you, that's okay. That's biblical, and that's right. Because when a hole opens up in our heart, it's not readily filled. And when you have someone who meant so much to you and they're no longer there at a certain point, you can't help but miss their presence, and that's okay. And this passage is not intended to rob you of that or to tell you that you shouldn't grieve. You can and even should lament in the season where lamenting is right and appropriate. But here's the qualifier. The qualifier is that as we lament and as we miss and as we grieve and as we love, as we go through that cycle of emotions, Paul says that we don't do it as those who have no hope of reunion, as those who have no hope of a future, as those who have no hope for our loved ones. Newsflash: If you have a loved one who's died in Christ, they're doing just fine. They're all right. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But I want to encourage you. This is not a passage that tells you not to grieve. It tells you to grieve appropriately and not as those who have no hope of a reunion and a future for you and your loved one. All right, let's see what that hope is vested in as we look at verse 14. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and that he rose again, If we believe that Jesus died, that he went to sleep, that his time on this earth was ended, if we believe that Jesus died but he rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. You know, 1954, the first guy to run the four-minute mile, anyone know his name? Bannister. Roger Bannister, 1954, the first guy. It took a long time for someone to run a four-minute mile. And what's interesting is that in the time since, and I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years since, however long it's been, in the 70 years since Roger Bannister ran the four-minute mile, almost 2,000 other individuals have done it. I'm hoping to do it next week. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> but here's, here's the thing. Here's the point. If one man could do it, then other men could too. If one man could accomplish something, then that accomplishment, that achievement, is not beyond other men. In a sense, that's the logic that Paul's using in verse 14. He's saying, if one man has defeated the grave, he's the first fruits. If one man has defeated the grave, then others can defeat the grave. If one man was dead and buried and cold and flatlining, and he rose, then the good news is that others can rise too. But... Here's the hint of Scripture. Here's the great trumpet blast of Scripture. Their rising needs to be yoked to His. And that's what we see here. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. So the qualifier here, the qualifier for hope, the qualifier for future, the qualifier for all the wonders of that glorious estate, the qualifier for the reunions we hope to have is found here in verse 14, if we believe. If we believe, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For the unbeliever, this verse does not offer a lot of encouragement, and for that I am sorry, because I know that is a real hurt in many of our hearts. For the unbeliever, there's no promise in Paul's words here. That's why we pray for our loved ones, and we minister to them. And we share Christ with Him either overtly through His word or through our love and affections. We preach Christ through word and deed with the intention that the people we love, especially in our family circle, will come to know Him. And the good news is that God is still in the saving business. God is not done saving and selecting people, even some of the people you think are the least likely people for Him to save, possibly because of the very things that are constantly coming out of their mouth. It's not up to them. That's the good news. You could have someone rejecting Jesus just to your face consistently. The good news for you and for them is it's not up to them. God will save who God saves in His time. With that said, for those who are outside of this at the moment, they do not have to be outside of that forever. However, God unfolds your prayers and your devotion and your ambassadorship as one of the means by which He will reach them. So don't stop, keep praying. With that said, again, this text is not given principally to the unbelievers. This is not principally an evangelistic text. It's a text to comfort those within the household of faith. And again, the encouragement is that those who die within this household of faith, that death's grasp is not a lasting one. Death can be beaten. What is verse 14? Jesus beat it. Jesus beat death. Death can be beaten. Death has been beaten. And in verse 14, the emphasis here is that death will be beaten again. If death were a boxer, he loses every round. You understand this? In the eyes of God, death cannot stop and not hold anyone that Christ calls his own. Death's grasp can't linger but for a moment upon those that God has called his And because of that, imagine if you're in Thessalonica and you're worried that perhaps death's hold is too great because this person died at the wrong time or just at this wrong interval. Paul says, no, no, no. If they have the belief that you have, if they share the faith of Abraham and Paul and Moses and all the rest of us and Timothy, they're just fine, Regardless of when they've died, past, present, or future. They're fine if they have this faith and this belief. I said before, if death were a boxer, he'd lose every round. And the reason he'd lose every round is this, because you have the right man on your side. You have the God-man, King Jesus, in your corner. You can't lose this. And that's what Jesus is telling the people in Thessalonians. And again, for those of us who despair because death seems to have stolen from us someone that we love so dearly, that meant so much to us, yes, for a season, for a short season, we miss them. And it's right and appropriate that we do. But again, it's not eternal. It doesn't last. Think about Moses. Moses dies. Long life. In due time, even Moses, God calls Moses home. But do you remember the picture of God's love for Moses? The picture when Moses died is this, that God, and we see this at the end of Deuteronomy, I believe, God comes to Moses, speaks to Moses, Moses dies, and God cradles his body and takes it to some unknown burial site. God not only cradles Moses' bones, God cradles Moses' soul and takes it up to be where he is. When you've lost someone, imagine God coming down, cradling that individual, and taking them to be where he is. And we know Moses. We know Moses is just fine. We know Moses is where God is. How do we know that? Matthew 17, the transfiguration, what happened? You have Jesus. He goes up the mount. And who does he meet with there? Moses. Who else? Elijah, two guys who never even met each other on this coil, are together. Moses and Elijah. Sometimes Moses and Elijah and you and me and Bob and Gardner and Roddy and so forth. That would be interesting. So you see how this works, but that's the case. They didn't know each other on earth, and there they are on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're talking with Jesus. Moses is just fine, and if Moses is just fine, so are the ones we love. So are the ones we care about. They're in the company, not only of the angels, but of their Savior and of all these other wonderful individuals who have predeceased us. They're just fine. When we grieve, don't grieve for them. We grieve for ourselves because we miss them. But it won't be forever. It won't be forever. There's a reunion. The circle, can the circle be unbroken? Yes, Lord, by and by. Our reunion, never been closer to it is today, and this is what Paul refers to in our next verses. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, so this is not Paul speaking speculatively, for this we say to you by the word of God himself, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always, 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 always be with the Lord. All right. A couple months ago, we did a Wednesday night study, maybe two months ago or so, we did a Wednesday night study on the rapture, on topics of the end times and on eschatology and the like. We talked about all the different theories about how and when and the chronology by which certain events would occur. I'm not going to repeat that for time's sake. That particular class is actually still available online. So we could look at this and try to figure out the chronology. That's not going to be our focus with the balance of time we have this morning. The balance of time this morning, I want to spend on Paul's primary point in these verses. And these verses, he's not trying to declare a fully rounded, fully orbed eschatology of all the things that are going to happen in the future. That's not his objective. So what is his objective? Well, he already said it, to comfort. To comfort people. That's his objective, so that'll be our objective with the balance of our time here. Now, As we said a few moments ago, there were folks who had all manner of worries about what happened to their loved ones, and they had all manner of worries about how Christ's return intersects with their future. Does he come back first? What if they die first? They were trying to work out all that sort of stuff. Well, in this text, what we see is this, broadly speaking. Paul says, don't worry about it. In this sense, don't worry that your loved ones, that believers, are going to be lost, irrespective of when they die. And then he gives a bit of a chronology, but the point is this. Whenever Jesus comes back, whatever point it should be, if you have passed in the years or centuries prior, you're still going to be okay. In fact, the dead will rise first. And if you happen to be alive when he comes back, you're going to be okay. And together, you, them, will rise with one another. The word with is in this text, and you will meet him in the air, whatever that is. I don't know how that looks. I don't know exactly how it will play out. But Paul's intent in writing to them and God's intent in sharing this with us is whatever it looks like and however it's manifest, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. Jesus is coming back. We've been praying for that because when he comes back, all the sin and death is gone. Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, there's going to be angels and trumpets and victory. Victory. And there will not be a believer on this globe who misses it. And that's what he's telling them. You haven't missed it. When it happens, when it happens, every believer will know. Because we who are alive when it happens, we are alive and will remain, shall be caught up together with them. Now, I want to linger on that word with, because for many of us, the grieving is some picture of isolation that we're either living in right now, isolated from our loved one, as if there's a wall between us, or some people have a fear that even in heaven we won't necessarily interact or know people or be with people, what have you. That's not what you see here. The word with suggests we will be with not only Jesus, but with one another, inclusive of those we've lost. The family circle will be together In the clouds and around the throne. This is what we see here. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, with our loved ones, with those who are past. In verse 17, you have a due date with a reunion with the very people you want to see most. And that's cool. And Paul wanted it to be cool and understandable and encouraging to the Thessalonians. And again, I believe God wants us to be encouraged by this as well. All right, so how do we respond to that promise? Let's look at our final verse, verse 18, in order to find out. Verse 18, therefore, therefore, comfort one another with these words. This passage is meant to comfort us. It won't put all of our questions to rest at this point. We're still on this side of the veil. There's things we don't fully understand. But his purpose isn't here to explain everything. His purpose is to comfort us. And there's so many passages that do that. This morning in our call to worship, we read one from Revelation 21. Let me reread it briefly here. Here's the future for you, for our loved ones, for all those who die in Christ. Revelation 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And then, verse 4 in Revelation 21 says this, And then God will wipe, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. No more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat, then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, right, for these words are true, and they are faithful. Being in a place where there's no more sin, where there's no more sorrow, where there's no more hurts, where there's no more scars, where there's no more tears. Not only are there no more tears, but where my heavenly Father does the one thing that at times I need most, where he condescends like a parent does to reach down and wipe tears from off, off of one's cheek, so to speak, where they will never return again. That's something to look forward to. And it's meant to comfort us, this picture, because we live in a darkened age. And sometimes we're so immersed in it, we don't see it for the darkness that it is. But what awaits us is so much better. In Revelation 21, we get a picture of that, just as we've gotten a picture in Thessalonians. Now, one of my favorite parts of that whole description in Revelation 21 is this simple phrase where God says, behold, I make all things new. I make all things new. You know, I've had my fill of the old. I don't know about you. I've had my fill of the old. I'm looking forward to renewed creation. There's times I don't think I can take the old one much longer. I don't know about you. I've lost too much. Already, I have received too many you know, scars, so to speak. I know I've cried too many tears, and I know I'm not the only one. And so this idea that God is going to come and make all things new, and you and I will dwell in a place that doesn't have all the stuff I just mentioned, the more I think about it, the more I want it, and the more I aspire to that, and the more okay I am with my own passing and mortality. First Corinthians Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So when the corruptible is put on incorruption, and mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory. This week you and I may have plenty of reasons to grieve, and there may be still reasons yet in our future. And if you're grieving today or tomorrow, that's okay. Even Jesus wept when it was appropriate to do so. But but as today's text has said, we do not grieve as those who don't believe the promises of this book. We do not grieve as those who have no hope that this isn't true and Christ isn't raised. Tears are not in your future reunions are. Comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. To search through an archive of Dr. Holt's previous sermons, please visit us at fpcgulfport.org, or you can look us up at sermonaudio.com.